Go ahead and grab your Bibles. You can flip to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we will be tonight. We're going to look at the whole chapter, so uh, 13 verses, Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 13. Um, I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we'll go ahead and get right, uh, right to work. Hebrews chapter 8, these are the words of God. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy in shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a, a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered as your people to hear from your words, so we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and fill them with the promise of your Holy Spirit, who graciously gives us both your law and your gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> so we are making our way through the book of Hebrews, and we now come to a pivotal section pertaining to the new covenant uh, and its relationship uh, to Jesus, our high priest, and us, God's covenant people. Now, up until this point, the writer has been building his thesis by demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ over all things. He is superior to angels superior to Moses and Aaron, he's superior to the Levitical priesthood, and so on. Um, part of the point of demonstrating Christ's superiority in that way, in this way, um, early on, is because he's setting the stage for really what we're going to cover tonight. That is, he wants to explain the uniqueness of the new covenant and how the new covenant is better. The new covenant is better. We have a better covenant. When we consider both who we are as the people of God in our relationship to God in the world, we have to be careful to make sure that we are thinking and acting covenantally. We have to be sure we're thinking and acting covenantally. Developing covenantal thinking is something that takes time 
and it requires meticulous study of the scriptures. And sadly, um, most Christians simply do not care enough to take the time to work at it. But make no mistake, maturity is tied to covenantal thinking. Maturity in the faith is tied to covenantal thinking. So what do we mean by this? The question that we have to ask ourselves is this. What is the point of a covenant? What is the point of a covenant? He's spending a whole chapter and then some in chapter 9 talking about this new covenant. What's the point of it? Why, is it? why does it matter? If you were to use one word to describe the Bible to your buddy, you're having coffee or what have you, if you were to use, um, use a word to describe the Bible, to describe God's intentions for creation, um, God's relationship with creation and God's relationship with man, would you use the word covenant or would you use something else? For many evangelicals, their adherence to the Christian faith tends to be defined by gushy, non-covenantal language. You'll say things like, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, which isn't everyone in a relationship with Jesus. Right? Some, of it, some are not, it's not a good relationship. Or, or you'll hear things like, uh, Jesus is my friend. <laughs> Jesus is my friend. You've heard it a thousand times. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. So <laughs> this sort of pietistic gush is not only uh, unhelpful, it's incredibly shallow. Because we lack covenantal thinking, we substitute rich biblical language for squishy love language. We unwittingly remove the more accurate language from the scriptures, and instead we adopt effeminate language. But this ought not to be the case. This is not what we should be doing. Instead of succumbing to an emasculated gospel, we should develop a more robust gospel. And part of the development is how we describe it. Part of, our, part of the development of that has to be rooted in understanding God's covenant, understanding the covenant. So let's answer the question, what is the point of a covenant? You, you, you use it with your friend, you're having coffee, and, and what's this God thing in relationship to creation in the Bible? And you say, well, it's covenant. And then he says, what, what's the point of a covenant? The answer is very simple. The point of God's covenantal undertaking in the world is to develop a oneness with his people. Covenant brings unity, and unity, which is inherent in the Trinity, unity is what God's, God desires with his people. So when God chose to create the world, he did so through means of a covenant. When God chose to create man, he did so, and he covenanted with man. Um, despite Adam's sin in the garden, God's redemptive impulse, God's redemptive drive led him to further his desire for unity with his people. And how he did that was by covenanting himself repeatedly. So he did so with Adam and Adam's posterity. He did so with Noah and he covenanted with um, Abraham. He did it with David. And all of those things should be understood as an expression of the, the um, covenant with Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Covenantal thinking is the framework, framework that we should use to not only understand our relationship with God, but our re relationship with the world, our relationship with our neighbor, and also ourselves. Because covenant is the thread woven through all of Scripture, 
We have to be people who insist upon it. We can't just say, well, that's just that minor thing. You know, it's a, it's a word nobody understands anyway, so why use it? We shouldn't, go, we shouldn't do that. We should insist upon using it. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and look through our text, and then we'll draw out some implications from it. Building off the arguments from chapter 7 regarding Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the writer does so to set up his case for understanding the now present reality of the new covenant. He tells us in verse 1 here in chapter 8 that the main point, the main point of what he's arguing is this. I love it when the Bible is just obvious. He just says, all right, and now to my main point, and you know, he just says it. <clears throat> we have a high priest in heaven who sits on a throne, and his presence is there. Now verse 2, it's there because he's a minister in the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle, the one God has made, not man. Don't miss that. He's a minister in the sanctuary. So Jesus is not only a priest, he's a king, right? We've established that already several times over in this book. But he's in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. What's the true tabernacle? It's the heavenly sanctuary, right? The throne room of God. So don't, you'll see why this is important as we go. And notice the last part, which the Lord pitched, not man. So we'll come back to that as we, as we go. So every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and Jesus is no different, verse 3. But what Jesus does differs significantly from the work of the priests of Aaron and Levi. According to verse 4, Make sure you keep this handy, verse handy, because it's very important. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. So why did, you know, uh, I think Jordan pointed this out last week or recently, just thinking about why did Jesus say, it's good that I leave? Because <laughs> we would much prefer Jesus walk through the door and join us for the night, right? In, in his physical presence here on earth. But he says, it's good that I leave. Why? So that the helper can come. So it's, uh, it's the idea that Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you sort of thing. So, so know that. <clears throat> so if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. And part of that is the fact is because he's not a Levite. And thus he couldn't offer sacrifices and gifts in accordance to the Mosaic economy, according to the law. That's what uh, shorthand for the Mosaic economy. Now, as a side note, this verse along with something else I'll point out in a bit, drives the nail in the coffin of dispensationalism and the error, that, the error of thinking that Jesus has to come back in order to be king. So that, that's a huge central verse, and we'll come back to that idea in a second. Now, the reason this is the case is because in verse 5, the priests on earth under Moses, they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Don't miss that. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So the writer has already demonstrated through Abraham's inferiority to Melchizedek that the priestly order of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical order. We covered that a couple weeks ago. So that's, that's the thinking. Jesus and the order of Melchizedek is greater than uh, and supersedes the order of, of Levi. Now the same argument is deployed here. Moses who was to make the tabernacle, he was shown for a brief time the heavenly throne room. So don't, don't miss the point here. The tabernacle and all the ministries done therein in the Mosaic economy 
we're copies and shadows of the heavenly reality. Okay, so what Moses created, what all the, I mean, you read the end of the book of Exodus, and it's just got every detail. Every, the ephod, the priests were to wear, every, all the colors, the shape, the sizes, everything was very well laid out. And that, you know, Moses didn't just come up with that. He was shown the heavenly throne room. So what the writer maintains is this. The heavenly Melchizedekian order, say that fast, <laughs> that's the priority here. That's the priority. Everything associated with the tabernacle and eventually the temple, temple, everything associated with it is inferior to the heavenly tabernacle and temple. So what Moses built and the people of Israel built in the wilderness as they were wandering, right, eventually getting to the land of promise, everything they built was simply a copy and a shadow of what Moses had seen in heaven. <clears throat> so thus, Jesus is in heaven, he's an anchor within the veil, and that particular heavenly tab tabernacle is much, much better. Now verse 6 explains that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, and the reason is because he is now the mediator of a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. So Levi, Moses, the burnt offerings, and everything in between in the Old Testament, they were all prequels or stage setters for the Melchizedekian priest king's heavenly new covenant. So I'll come back to that in a bit. So to further prove his argument, the writer draws upon Jeremiah chapter 31 as a proof of his theology. He's, he's teaching the Hebrews a lesson about the superiority of Jesus, and now he's got a proof text. He's got, he's got scripture to back his argument. He goes no other place than Jeremiah 31. Now the argument is simple from verse 7. <clears throat> if the Old Testament... The first covenant had been perfect, without fault. Why in the world would there need to be a second, a new covenant? If, if what Moses had done and the whole economy of the Old Testament system had been perfect, then what need would there be of Jesus? What, Jesus came, died, and rose again. Now suddenly all that's brought into question. But that's what Jeremiah 31 argues. There is a problem with the Old Covenant, and it isn't because the covenant has this built-in self-destruct mechanism. It's because the people of God didn't obey it. Now, Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy about several things, but no, most notably it's centered on the coming of a renewed covenant, this new covenant, with better features and better facets to it. Verse 8 <clears throat> says that there will come a day when God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, the people of God. It won't be like the prior covenant, verse 9, when Moses the mediator took them out of Egypt, only then to rebel against the covenant again. This covenant will be altogether different, he says. This covenant will feature two very important things. The first one's in verse 10. Verse 10 says that it will have the feature of internalization, the law of God will be put in the minds of God's people and written on their hearts. Instead of the law being on tablets of stone, they will go on the hearts of flesh, of men. And not only that, because of the role of mediation, uh, <clears throat> because the role of mediation will be perfected fully and finally in Christ, and not Moses, and not other men, there won't be a need for any other mediation. There won't be another need for a mediator, someone to teach the covenant stipulations like Moses. There will no, you will have access to God immediately and quickly, right? You don't have, there's no, 
There's no mediator. There's no teacher that will have to teach all these things. Why? Because all will know the Lord. And this is a wonderful text for us who uh, are at Post Mill uh, and love the idea of God actually saving the world because he intends to save the world and not just being this figurative thing, you know, oh, yeah, he's going to save the world, you know, when he comes back or eventually. God intends to save the world in history. So all the stipulations of the law of God will then go inside the heart, and that's through the mediation of Christ. That's verse 11. The other feature, not only will the law be internalized in God's people, there is one final feature, that of forgiveness. Instead of covering for the sins in the old economy, all of those sacrifices in the sacrificial system, it all pointed to Christ, who is our substitute. That's the new feature of a new covenant, the complete and utter removal of sins through the perfect sacrifice, verse 12. Because of this, the first covenant is obsolete. It is abolished, verse 13. This obsolete covenant, which was centered on the temple in Jerusalem with all of her priests and all of her animals and all of her sacrifices, it's growing old. And look at the text. It is ready to disappear. Now, this is a very, very key text for understanding that the end of the old economy was the destruction of Jerusalem and her temple by Rome in AD 70. Now remember that we've, we've uh, talked about this several times, but the writer is writing in the in-between. The old age is coming to pass. It's, becoming, it's ready to disappear or ready to vanish. Um, and uh, the writer is writing to the group of Hebrews who hasn't seen that yet. Um, I imagine that some of them had speculation about the Olivet Discourse and what Jesus meant. When he said, none of these stones are going to be left standing here. They're all going to be thrown down. Um, the abomination of desolation, not some future Antichrist. It's, it's Rome surrounding Jerusalem. Luke um, tells us that pretty clearly. So all of this is kind of um, percolating, if you will, for the people of God. The writer knows the end of that old economy, it's coming to an end. It will come to a decisive end when the temple is completely raised, when it's completely destroyed. Now, for the audience, um, who as Jewish Christians, they found the temple to be quite significant, they needed to understand why that old economy was coming to an end. And its end would be utter devastation. Millions of people, mass murder, I mean, just absolute chaos. Murder, destruction, fire. Um, Rome would absolutely level Jerusalem. So they needed to know, what's this old covenant business? What's this new covenant business? Jesus is here. Help me sort this out sort of thing. So that's just a quick overview of the passage, and let's unpack it some more. When we study the covenants of God, we have to keep in mind that covenants, the covenants were not a bunch of failures piled up onto each other. It isn't as though God made a covenant after covenant, right? Abraham and David and Noah in there. It's not as though he, he made all these covenants and he couldn't quite just get it right. Like it was a trial and error thing. Well, Adam didn't work. We'll see how that went. So Abraham, what do you think? Maybe we'll give it a roll. It's not like that. Those covenants are not just piled upon each other like a bunch of failures and then God finally figured it out, right? The, it, it wasn't that the, the, the covenants in the Old Testament were just you know, various releases of software and they each had their bugs, but then Jesus came and you know, now it's, they're all worked out. We finally got it right. God, he did not make a mistake with Adam. 
He did not make a mistake with Abraham or Moses or David. And then he, you know, then he got it right with Jesus. That's not the case. Covenant theology, properly understood, dictates that all the covenants of God, all the covenants with Adam, Abraham, David, Noah, all of them are expressions of his general covenant of grace. While many theologians will disagree on how we should piece them together, one thing is clear. God's redemptive purposes do not fail. They never fail. And his governance of history doesn't get thwarted by man. And one of the key texts here has to do with verse 5 and the fact that Moses copied the heavenly tabernacle. Moses copied the heavenly temple. And follow the train of thought. Moses, in the old covenant economy, was told to construct the tabernacle, which was just a precursor to the temple that was built by Solomon, When building this tabernacle, he was given very, very specific instructions. He didn't sit down and, hey, what's your idea? Well, I think it should look like this. They didn't have that conversation. God showed him what it was to look like. God told him. God had shown Moses the heavenly temple, right, which meant that the earthly tabernacle was to to be this earthly replication of the heavenly throne room. That was the point. Now, don't miss the implication of it because it does throw a wrench into the era of dispensationalism. The Old Testament mosaic economy, right, that's the sacrificial system of atonement, was a shadow of heaven. Now, I'm going to bend your brain a little bit, so hopefully it won't be too painful. The Old Testament mosaic economy was a shadow of heaven. It was a shadow of the new covenant. Moses copied the new covenant long before the new covenant existed. So that's the point we're getting at. The New Testament is the the new covenant is the heavenly tabernacle in heavenly Jerusalem. The Old Testament is the shadow of the heavenly heavenly tabernacle. This is primarily the issue of atonement, but the issue of the throne is the same thing. The throne of Israel Remember when Israel had demanded a king, right? And, and you know, God says, look, like it's, it's not going to be pretty. You know, he's going to tax you so you can build roads. He's going <laughs> to oppress your people. Sound like America? Was, okay. All right. Let's just go. All right. You're picking up what I'm laying down. Good. Um, they wanted this king like the other nations, the text says. And instead of being content with, with God as king, as Christ as king, they wanted a, another king to come in. So the throne of Israel, the throne in Israel, the kingship of the, you know, the Israelite kings, all of that was to represent the throne of heaven. So David's throne is not in literal Jerusalem, and we're not waiting someday for the temple to be rebuilt so Jesus can come back and be king in Jerusalem. That's not the, that's not the point. In fact, Hosea later on tells tells us that that heavenly throne or uh, the earthly throne was transferred back to the heavenly throne. So Jesus is in heaven right now as a high priest. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. He's in the heavenly temple. He's in, right, he's in that tabernacle, but he's seated on David's throne. Those two concepts run together. So, so David's throne is not in Israel today. David's throne is in heaven because David's throne is a representation of the heavenly throne. Now, not to get too far into the weeds, but it's theologically correct. 
to see both continuity and discontinuity with the covenants of God. You would be an accurate theologian doing good theology when you see both continuity with the covenants and discontinuity. Now this, this overarching covenant of grace, which stems from Adam to Jesus, all of, all of history, it has different administrations and different expressions and forms. The function and the substance of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was to be very similar to the function and substance of the New Right, The blood of bulls and goats, we know, was to atone, was to cover for sin. And this was done by a priest who was told to mediate these things. Animals, though, they were used as a shadow of what substitutionary atonement would look like with Christ being our Passover lamb. So the function is there, but the form itself is different. But the new covenant, the new covenant substance All of it is shored up in Christ, who is the priest, who is our sacrifice, who is our king. Now, the form has changed, so don't miss this. The form has changed. The substance of blessing in the the covenants is the same. The makeup of the covenants is the same, too. Children, for example, are covenant members all the way down through history. But that's why this is called in Scripture a better covenant. It's not because the old covenant with all the mosaic economy and stuff, was bad. It wasn't bad. It was good, but Jesus is better. To reiterate, the new covenant supersedes the old because the promises are better, the form of the administration of the old covenant changes, but the substance remains the same. I cannot tell you, I cannot emphasize enough how many problems develop when you don't understand the covenants. So many different errors creep in when, when, you, when you think, well, the Old Testament is when God gave His law, and His law is so harsh and rude and cruel, and then Jesus came and sort of like rectified that, maybe gave the law a new look, a little, maybe a new, a new campaign to sell it better, um, you know, new branding. <laughs> and, and honestly, that's, that thinking is what passes in most churches today, where... God in the Old Testament was angry. We got his med- medication right in the new. <laughs> so now, you know, because he's creator and needs pharmaceuticals. But that, that is how, when you get a false dichotomy between law and gospel. We love both of them at Cross and Crown Church. They're both awesome. We, lo- we rejoice in, in love. We talk about them all, both of them all the time. So we can't put these arbitrary boundaries and, and, and mess with God's covenants like, the, you know, like he just sort of tried something and then, well, that didn't work. I guess the blood of animals doesn't really atone, so I guess we'll just send Jesus in to kind of fix it. So make sure we, <clears throat> make sure we understand it. Now, I agree uh, the book recommendation was the Christ of the covenants. I agree with O. Palmer Robertson. In the last chapter, he said that the new covenant ought to be called the covenant of consummation. So all of that stuff from Adam all the way through history is consummated. It's brought to its head, brought to its telos, its goal, in Jesus. So all of them point forward and find their appointed consummation in Christ. So all of it, think of like a building, all of it was simply scaffolding used for a time and a purpose in order to reveal this New Testament edifice. 
this, new, this beautiful building built on Christ and His promises and his complete, the completeness of His atonement and so on. Now, as I mentioned before, there are two unique differences, two things that are discontinuous with, with, uh, from the old to the new. The first has to do with the internalization of the law of God. With Moses, the law was written on tablets of stone. It was completely external. Now, this was good, and it was right, and it was true. That was God's redemptive intention. But it wasn't better. What's better about the new covenant, whose admin is Christ in heaven, is the fact that the law is now internalized. It's taken from something you look at purely on the outside, and it's brought inside of you. When the Spirit of God regenerates a man, a woman, or an infant for that matter, the Spirit writes the law of God in the heart. Note it, in, in just as a sidebar, in Romans 2, Paul is very clear. He says that the work of the law is written on the unbeliever. The work of the law. The effects of God's law. So Because some people say, well, the law of God is written on everybody's hearts. Not exactly. The work of the law is written on the reprobate. That's why we can have conversations at George Mason with people who know better. They know better. Um, So so the law of God goes into the heart. And and that's why a couple weeks ago I said that the Holy Spirit is a theonomist. The Spirit (laughs) takes the law of God and He jams it into the regenerate Christian's heart and mind. So sort of like... You have about as much to do with um, your spiritual birth as you did your regular birth, right? You're... Same thing with the Holy Spirit. You, you don't get to choose, well, I don't really want the law in my heart. It, you, you get it, so deal with it sort of thing, right? <clears throat> so thus, morality and ethics and righteousness and justice, all of that becomes the main objective for the newly inspirited man. He's, he possesses the Holy Spirit who brought along with him the law of God, and now the Christian is to take that which is internal and make it manifest on the outside. More on this later. The second feature of the new covenant, this remember there's discontinuity. The first is goes from external to internal. The second is the issue of forgiveness. Now in the old economy, God cared about circumcision of the heart just like he did in the new. Don't, don't let anybody ever tell you different. God cared about circumcision of the heart all the way through history. That's the only circumcision that ultimately matters. Which, by the way, regeneration regeneration is not a New Testament doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. So keep that in mind, too. But this, this regeneration in, in the New, it's, it's the same as the Old in one sense, but it shifts a bit in the New Testament, the New Covenant. The law isn't only on the outside, it's now on the inside. And this stems from the fact that men are truly and fully forgiven by the blood of Christ, who is the true and better high priest. If you're struggling, having a rough day, just stop and remember that Christ's blood actually completely forgives you. That you don't have to work for it. You don't, it, it. He actually removes your sin. So the gift Christ gave was himself, And so was the sacrifice. Jesus, the priest, he atoned for the sins of his people fully and finally. The new covenant then is a covenant of finality, a covenant of consummation. Everything points there. Jesus' atonement perfects our salvation. His atonement perfects our salvation. The blood of bulls and goats could not atone, but Jesus can. And for us, that's very good news. Now, I want to go back to the, the issue of developing covenantal thinking. 
Developing covenantal thinking and living and application requires that we know and understand how God intends to interact with the world. Because for, for some of us, we just kind of whole hum our Christian life along. And yeah, God's kind of up there, right? And, and we belittle him, you know, the big guy upstairs. We, th- we say things that are irreverent and silly. And, but I'm down here, and i got to go to work tomorrow, and I hate my job, and I don't know what I'm supposed you know. And so we kind of get in this, like, dualistic trap of God's up there, I'm down here, and once in a while he throws me some crumbs. That's how we treat the Christian life. But we need to know how God actually interacts with the world every single day. We need to know, we must know, of God's transcendency and Christ's superiority. We need to know that he is the supreme one. We need to know our role as God's vice regents. We need to understand God's law. We need to know it inside and out. And we need to know the presuppositional character of God's law. Otherwise, how do you go to a place like George Mason talking to college students who are a bunch of nihilists who think that nothing matters but their view that nothing matters? What do you do with that? You bring God's law to bear, right? You, you bring it. So we have to know also... God's sanctions in history and how those sanctions come to bear on both the elect of God and the reprobate. And frankly, and you hear this sometimes, boy, God's going to bring judgment because of, because of abortion, because we keep killing our children. He's going to bring judgment. It's the judgment. That is the judgment. We are bloodlusts and we're caught up in all of our bloodlusts. That's the judgment. That's the sanction. And then we also got to know and understand God's plan for victory in history that we're not walking around with just, you know, worry warts. Oh, God, I don't know if he's going to take care of this or not, or I don't think he's, he's going to win. Have you seen the news? Things are really bad, right? We have to be committed to God's covenant of grace in everything, in all things. We must know and believe and proclaim that God's new covenant actually forgives sinners, that the covenant law treaty does reside in our hearts, that God intends to save the world through the vehicle of both the law and the gospel. This is covenantal thinking. But we have to be careful here. The Hebrews, they were tempted to limit God to the Levitical administration. They were tempted to go back to that. The temple was still standing in Jerusalem, this seventh wonder of the world, this beautiful edifice that Herod had um, tried to bring uh, um, newness to it after it had been destroyed by Babylon. So all, they were tempted to limit God to temples made by human hands. Now, we tend to limit God to the church. We're going there. We tend to limit God to the church. We, when we refuse to speak out against injustice, when we refuse to stand for God's covenant in the world, what do we do? We limit the gospel. We put God in a nice, tidy little box, and we keep him there. Once in a while, we'll throw him some food. We think, that, we think that God is present with us when we gather on Sundays and when we're left on our own on Monday through Saturday. Well, we think that we, think that we only ascend to the heavenly places when we sing our psalms and our hymns. But not we're on the streets proclaiming Christ. We limit God's activity strictly to the institutional church. But make no mistake, God will not be limited to the church, especially to a church that still has yet to repent for her apathy. Now, we need to establish 
proper patterns, and these proper patterns, these functions, give us the form of Christianity we are supposed to labor under. And it starts with this. The revealed Word of God is so much better than man's Word. It's so much better. What we need need now more than anything else is a truly covenantal approach to all things. We need to think like covenant people because we are covenant people. New covenant living in an age of moral debauchery means gospel proclamation and not just the gospel proclamation that is dumbed down. Not the sort of proclamation that says Jesus loves you and he just wants you to be happy. Not, not the garbage that antinomian pastors and churches put forth. Things like, well, you should just give Jesus a try. Try him out. We need a gospel proclamation centered on the kingdom of God and the covenantal structure therein, which means that we have to get to the point where we see the foundation for a renewed and a regenerate humanity as being rooted in a proper understanding of the atonement of Christ. So many people think that the gospel is only the atonement, that that's it, like you get to go to heaven. Now, it's not any less than that, that's for sure, but it is more. And it's not only that. Jesus did not die. Hear me out. He did not die just to try and snatch a few souls off the earth and take them to heaven because, you know, the earth is the Titanic and we got to get off this thing. No. Jesus' atonement was a means of worldwide victory. Worldwide victory. It is the victorious gospel of the kingdom of God that we must preach and proclaim. This is getting your covenantal thinking in order. We have to know that Jesus Christ's ability to save far outweighs man's ability to sin. We have to see this high priest as actively using his covenant, ruling with a rod of iron, as a means to enforce his kingdom. Like, he's not, Jesus is not, you know, this impish beggar who's trying to get people to accept his kingdom. You either accept it or he will break you. That's, that's the invitation. That's the invitation. Bow now or bow later, but you will bow. <laughs> so he, Jesus isn't a cowering priest in heaven with his hands tied trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do next. He is a priest whose atonement actually works, and he is also a king whose sword will take down nations. Now, what we should know from this passage and what the Hebrew Christians knew while reading it and receiving this letter is that Jeremiah 31 isn't invoked because it teaches a compromised antinomian covenant. It's invoked because it teaches a law-saturated, gospel-infiltrated new covenant that will be victorious. In other words, when you reject Christ as priest, you reject his victory. And the opposite is true. When you go around rejecting Christ's victory, you are in fact rejecting his atonement. And anyone teaching that Christ's atonement is not intended for the conquering of the nations is teaching a weak, impish gospel, which is no gospel at all. The Holy Spirit regenerates God's people, writes that law on their hearts, and sends them out as cleansed people capable of tearing down any lofty philosophy and any aberrant doctrine. So you and I were bought with a price, and that price includes our lives. 
We were bought from being slaves to sin so that we can become slaves to Christ. And Christ, our master, does not wish to see us be idle. He does not wish to see us make ourselves irrelevant to the world around us. He he intends for us to break down every opinion, every injustice, every supposed wisdom of man, break it down because it stands against his covenant. So the new covenant, we'll end with this, the new covenant recruits you and I in such a way so as to make us not only love the covenant law, but do something with it. Far too many Christians think that the point of the covenant is just to whisk them away to a heavenly bliss where they float around on clouds with naked baby angels eating marshmallows. (laughs) This is not God's point. It's not. I'm sorry to break the news to you. (laughs) Maybe they'll be marshmallows. (laughs) Dipped in Nutella or something, you know. (laughs) That's... But that's not how we should think about it. We are in covenant to proclaim this covenant and take this covenant into every corner of the world. And the reason that it's a better covenant is because it can actually be done. It can actually be done. And so we rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this day that you have chosen to bring us into your new covenant. We are thankful that this covenant is enacted on better promises. Not because your older promises weren't good, but because you have chosen to redeem the world by a process known only to the counsel and wisdom of the triune God. So help us, Lord, to develop covenantal eyes, covenantal hearts, using covenantal brains to enforce your covenant in a world that needs it. We ask, God, that you would make your covenantal stipulations known to us and our children and to the world so that in our obedience we can bring you greater glory And we can fulfill that which you have called us to. So it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.